Good morning. Happy 4th of July. It's great to be in the house of the Lord this morning, and it's wonderful that we have this freedom. Uh, that's something that we are going to celebrate today. So we are going to try to finish the book of Colossians this morning. We've got about a chapter and a half to get through, and we can do it. we just got to stick with it. So we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 18. And we saw last week some of these traits that believers have when they allow Christ to have the preeminent position in their lives. When they allow Christ to be number one in their lives, we see that they necessarily put off certain things and put on certain things. So you you put off these things that are of the flesh. You put on the things which are of Christ. So we saw that. That is Christ being preeminent in our lives. This week, we're going to see Christ being preeminent in our lives and how that affects things in the home. We'll see how it affects things in the home. We will also see some guys uh, in the early church who let Christ be preeminent in their lives, and we'll see the fruits of that. We'll see some of these guys, and they're named by name, and we'll see how that affected their lives. and the early ministry of uh, the gospel. Now, as we come into these few verses about marriage, you got uh, exhortation to wives, you got an exhortation to husbands, um, and you have an exor- exhortation to children and fathers. So we're going to see all of these things. Now, it's important to understand that the household is the first battleground. As a man, you're the head of your house and the spiritual leader. And before you go out into the world and minister to the world, you have to minister to your own household. That's one of our jobs as men, and as fathers more so. So Satan tries to come in, infiltrate this plan that God has, tear apart homes. The family unit is the smallest unit in America. If you can divide the family, you can divide every other facet of our culture. So Satan knows that, and he targets the family. And we've seen him do this by trying to switch up definitions of things, definitions of marriage. We see what God instituted in the garden. Before the fall, that's important to note, this is a perfect institution, and it was only muddled a little bit after the fall. Okay, so Satan tries to go in, split this definition, and insert his own phrasing into it, just like he did in the garden with Eve. Did God really say that? Did he really say that you would die? Surely that's not true. So he goes in, he divides us, and he does it all the time. And I'm sure that you see it uh, today wherever you look. When God's plan for the family unit is compromised, a whole host of other issues come right along with it. So we're going to look at this. And uh, seeing me up here, uh, you may be like, well, who are you to tell me about marriage? And, and you're right, okay? I'm not... Not a a husband, I'm not a dad, but what I can do 
is look at God's word and see what he says about it. And I'll do my best to convey some of that to you this morning. But as far as personal experience, I don't have any. But I do have parents, and they're still married. And I've seen how they deal with issues, right or wrong. I've seen it. And I can take some of that experience and apply it to this. So, let's get going. Colossians 3, verse 18. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So right off the bat, um, Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, wives, you know, there is this certain order that needs to happen in marriage. You should submit to your husband. And it's worth noting that it says to your own husbands, not to every husband, not to somebody else's husband. And it's not even talking about submitting to all males. Okay. We're talking about specifically in marriage. The wife is under the husband in submission. It's also not talking about dating couples. So, ladies, if you're dating someone, you don't have to submit to them in a dating relationship like you do in marriage. Okay, those are distinct different things. As is fitting in the Lord. Wives, if your husband asks you to sin, You do not have to submit to him in that. That is not fitting in the Lord. If he asks you to lie, don't have to submit. If he asks you to watch pornography with him, don't have to do that. That's not fitting in the Lord. So wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now we're going to pick on the husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. And in Ephesians, Uh, A very similar letter that Paul wrote uh, along many of the same lines as Colossians. He adds, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, what does that look like? Well, Christ, being the preeminent one, being eternal with the Father, stooped down to the earth where his church would be. And he placed himself there. He died there. That's how Christ loved the church. So husbands, we've got big shoes to fill. We are to love our wives the same way that Christ loved the church. So that means sometimes you may not get everything that you want. Sometimes you may need to make sacrifices for your wife. And that's that comes with the territory. We know that. So husbands, love your wives. And do not be bitter toward them. Don't get mad at them because they didn't read verse 18. Okay, You're not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will work in their lives. Verse 20. Now we can all pick on the children together. Okay, Children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now there's only about four verses, I think, that speak directly to children in the whole Bible. All of them are along the same lines. Children, obey your parents. That seems to be about all that kids need to know. And um, there is a distinction. God draws a distinction between the child that we're talking about here and a young man or a young woman 
who is of the age of reason. And the age of reason is not used in the Bible, but it is something that we can see. Um, so, there we go. You ready? When you're raising your child, and they're little, they need to obey you. That's very cut and dry. They need to do what you say. And hopefully, you're a parent who demonstrates the love of Christ to them. And in that, you would be asking them to do things that are Christ-like. So, when they're little, they obey you because you said so. Because I'm 200 pounds, you're a little squirt, and you're not getting away with it. So just do it. But there comes a time, I don't know when that time is, sometime between childhood and adulthood. Okay, it's, I, I really do think it's different for every child. But there's a time when God respects their ability to reason. So as a parent, I think it's wise that you would do the same. You respect their ability to reason. So there comes a point when it's no longer because I said so. You have to reason with them. You have to respect their ability to reason. So instead of saying, yeah, you can't listen to that because I said so, just say, hey, like, bring the CD with you. Let's read the lyrics together. Let me show you why you can't listen to that. So children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And that's all they got to worry about. Just obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, every kid needs something a little bit different from you, right? I know I needed something different than my sister needs. And she needs something very different than what my brother needs. And my parents were really good about that. I've heard stories of, like, parents beating all their kids when one of them messed up. That doesn't make much sense to me. And I don't think that that's biblical. But but it happens. And I think there's a better way to do it. Each kid needs something a little bit different. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Some become discouraged easier than others. Some need that affection, that affirmation, like, come on, you got this. Like, that was good work. Now keep it up. Uh, just a constant uh, affirmation from you. Others, you just turn them loose and they're just going. They get through school, no problem move on, go to college, no problem. Uh, others, you got to help every night with their homework, you know, and it's not bad, it's just different. Uh, maybe one of your kids is very gifted socially. They can talk to anyone and everyone. Maybe one of your other kids is very mathematical, very analytical in their thinking. Maybe they don't get along as well with other kids, but they just fly through their math homework. They're different. So don't let them get discouraged. Don't provoke them. So this idea of provoking is like messing with a rattlesnake. You don't want to poke the little guy because he'd come after you. Okay? So we want to let it be. Encourage your children. Don't discourage them. 22, bond servants. Now, we see bond servants and we're like, eh. We don't have really slaves in this sense. Uh, make no mistake, slavery is still an issue in the United States, but it's not in the same way that it used to be. Now, it says bond servants. Today, 
we can equate this to employees. It's a great application for us. So employees obey in all things your employers according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. <laughs> Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. God recognizes that we have to make a living, and we have to do that in the flesh. Like here, presently, in my body, I have to work to make a living. Now, it says, obey in all things your masters. Similarly to wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Don't let your boss lead you into sin. There is a time when you have to stand for something greater. When you stand for what you know in Christ and not what your boss knows. But in all things that are fitting in the Lord, employees should submit to their employers. There's this order of things. And we'll talk about the order and authority in just a second as well. Not with eye service as men-pleasers. When I say that, you probably thought of somebody that you've worked with in the past. Oh, hurry, the boss is coming. Get back to work. They're men-pleasers. Only with eye service do they work hard. Don't do that, but work in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Work as to the Lord, not to men. That's what we should be striving for. And that makes an awesome employee, doesn't it? When you're not trying to please men, but you're trying to please God, if I was running a business, I would want an army of those. An army. Just every one of them. Just give them to me. Because you know they're going to work hard. When you're not around, when you're around, it doesn't matter. Not men pleasers. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong, who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, starting uh, chapter 4, he talks to masters. So now we're talking to employers. Okay, Employers, give your employees what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So don't cheat them of their wages. <laughs> don't slack off when you're uh, providing their benefits. Don't do any of this. Treat them fairly. The employee and the employer both know uh, the effect that the employee's work has on the company. They both know what that's worth, right? So it's not wise to shortchange that guy just because you can, just because you're in a position of authority, but treat them fairly and with respect uh, because Christians under you are still children of God. And they deserve that respect. 
and so do so does everyone else in the world, of course. But under Christ, we are all brothers and sisters. Give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, this is a really interesting piece of scripture that we're going to come to. It's Matthew 8, 5. And it, it goes on a little bit past verse 5, but that's where we're going to start. This is Jesus' interaction with a Roman centurion. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So what is he saying? The centurion is saying, Jesus, I know that you have authority over this sickness, over whatever's causing it. I know how authority works because I also am under authority and I have those under me. So look what, look at Jesus' uh, response to this. It's pretty cool. Verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled. He marveled at this guy and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. That's awesome. The centurion knows this concept of authority. He knows how it works. Those who are in authority have the say over those who are under authority. Jesus had authority over this sickness. And later on, uh, Jesus does say that he's healed. The centurion goes back and his servant is healed. As the centurion has a master in Caesar, so we have a master in heaven. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Now, verses 2 through 4 tell us how we should talk to God about men. Verses 5 and 6 tell us how we should talk to men about God. Okay, so we're going to look at this a little bit closer. Uh, there's some good stuff to glean out of here. Paul says, continue earnestly in prayer. Now this idea of continuing earnestly can also be said as continuing steadfastly to give oneself continually to something, in this case prayer, to be steadfastly attentive unto prayer, to give unremitting care to prayer, or to persevere in prayer. All of these things, it's the same idea. It's an idea of discipline, of work. So we're working at this. Prayer is a spiritual exercise. And it is also a gift, and it fills us up. But it takes discipline to be sitting there at night at your desk, you're trying to snooze off 
you got to get back in your prayer time. You have to discipline yourself into that. And R. Kent Hughes wrote a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man. He uses the term holy sweat a lot, and especially in regards to prayer. And I loved that. I thought it was hilarious, but so true. It's holy sweat. You have to work for it, but it's good for you. So continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it. Now, being vigilant in it, that's going to carry a lot of the same connotations that continuing earnestly did. But this is more like a watch and pray type of deal. He's saying be vigilant, keep your eyes open, be looking for attacks, and pray. Be vigilant in it. Nehemiah 4.9 uh, the enemies of Israel were closing in on them. And it says, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. They prayed, and they were watchful. They set a watch against their enemies. Watch and pray. In Mark 14.38, this is right before Jesus was taken to be crucified. He was in the garden with his disciples. And he said to them, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we know from reading that passage, the disciples fell asleep twice. Each time Jesus came back and said, watch and pray. Be vigilant. Stick with it, guys. I need you right now. So watch and pray. Being vigilant in it. With thanksgiving. Now, prayer should come from a thankful spirit. We have so much to be thankful for. And that should compel us to be in prayer continually. Now, that's not to say that terrible things won't happen. Because they will. Really, really terrible things and ordinarily terrible things. So, what we're not saying when we say be thankful in prayer is to thank God. Thank you so much, God, that my car broke down on the side of the highway and it's pouring outside and I don't have a ride. Thank you so much for that. That's not what we're talking about. But if you spin that around, you can still be thankful in that situation. God, thank you. I know I live in a broken world right now. My car breaks down. I get rained on. I understand that. But thank you for the hope that I have beyond this world. Thank you that eventually, soon I believe, he will return and he will bring within the kingdom. Thank you for that, God. And that logic can be applied across a lot of different situations. From the ordinarily terrible things, your car breaking down, to the really, really terrible things. Uh, you have someone die in your family. Now, Death is not natural. We're, we're not made to handle death. It wasn't in God's original perfect plan. Now, we have to deal with death because of the fall, because of a choice that we made. But that's not, we don't know how to compute that. It doesn't work. So we struggle with it. But even in that, we can be thankful for our life in Christ after death. That's the thankfulness that we need to have in prayer. So, 
Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. Now, meanwhile, praying also for us. Paul desired the prayers of this church. He was a minister, he was a missionary, and he desired their prayers. I think that's a good thing. I think that ministers should desire the prayers of the church. I think it's vital. Not only a good thing, but it's necessary. When you step up here, when you lead your home fellowship, when you lead a tiny little Bible study, when you pastor a mega church, you put a giant target on the back of your back. And you are person number one that the enemy comes for. Because he knows that through you, some wonderful things can happen for God. So, yeah, we ask for your prayers. We do. And we need them. Uh, that goes for me, for Justin, everyone involved in the church. We need your prayers. So, meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word. Now, if Paul needed a door to be opened for him to preach the word, how much more do we need a door open for us? The great apostle prayed for God to open a door. He's asking them to pray for the same thing, that God would open a door to him. So we need the same thing. We can't be barging in with the gospel. Hey, here it is. Now will you accept it? I mean, maybe God has prepared hearts for that. And maybe people will accept that. But even then, God opened the door in their hearts. You see, the gospel doesn't take effect without the work of the Holy Spirit. It's foolishness to man. And it is. Nobody's heard anything like it. This gospel of grace is foolishness. But with the preparation in the hearts of these individuals, it will penetrate stone. It will sink in and it will do its work. That's encouraging. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the rest of Galatia, this is in Acts 16, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of God did not permit them. Hmm, that's interesting. And it was by that restraining their going to these places that the Holy Spirit led the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles. It was that closed door that opened the door to the rest of the world. I thought that was interesting. It was just a little restraining, a little guiding on the part of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know exactly what it was that the Holy Spirit did to cause them to go somewhere else. might have had to do with Paul's eye issue. I'm not sure. But whatever it was, it was a nudge in the right direction. It was where the Holy Spirit wanted them to go is where they ended up. And as a result of that, the Gentiles were grafted into this family of God. 
In 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, Paul says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's exactly what we're talking about. We don't try to woo somebody with our knowledge. There's a time and a place for apologetics. I'm not, I'm not saying to discard that. I love apologetics myself. But the Spirit of God has to precede you. We're not trying to win somebody with knowledge. Because if we do win somebody, win somebody with knowledge, they can be won back by knowledge to the world. You'll go into college and you'll have professors that want to win you back to the world. And they will fight tooth and nail with you to drag you back into the world. If you were wooed into Christ with knowledge, they can woo you back with knowledge. So that's a dangerous game to play. I would rather demonstrate the spirit and the power and have that be the root of someone's faith than persuasive words of man. That God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church shortly before he wrote the letter to the Philippian church. Okay, Here, he's asking the Colossian church to pray that a door would be open for the gospel to go out in Rome. Because Paul is writing this from a prison in Rome. Look in Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Slightly after he asked for these prayers. Okay. Paul tells of the doors that were opened to him. He says, but I want you to know, brethren, writing to the Philippians now, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ, not in Rome. He wasn't held captive by Rome. He was held captive by Christ. He calls himself a bondservant of Christ. That my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So by his example, his strong spirit in prison, many of the other Christians in Rome were now bolder by that. So that's encouraging. Paul, in the letter to the Colossians, asked for that church to pray for him, that doors would be open. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, just a short while later, says, guys, look what just happened. These doors were opened, and the gospel went out into the whole praetorium, the whole guard of Caesar, and everybody knows that my chains are in Christ. Good job. That's awesome. That's cool to see. Verse 5. Now, we're coming out of... Oh, let's, let's finish up. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I 
am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now, two through four, I told you that's how we're talking to God about men. Now, verses five and six tells us how we should talk to men about God. Let's look at it. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Those who are outside is simply speaking of unbelievers. Those who are outside the body of Christ. Our first witness to them is how we act. Walk in wisdom. You can speak in wisdom too, but walk in wisdom first. And it's been said, and I'll go ahead and say it again, but you are the only Bible that some people will ever read. The church should be a representative of Christ. We represent Christ on earth. And when we go into the lives of unbelievers, into the workplace, just talked about the workplace, and you demonstrate the characteristics that Paul just told us to put on, put on these things, and you demonstrate that to the world, they will see something is different in your life than in theirs. And that will cause them to wonder, you know, what, what's up with this guy? Why is he always smiling? That's annoying. <laughs> right? I mean, that's their attitude. So you can demonstrate it. You can walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. Redeeming the time. This is an interesting phrase. Redeeming the time. Time, right here, this word in Greek is kairos. Kairos talks about a specific time. It's not an age, an aeon. It's not an undetermined period of time, like chronos. They, that, they all mean time, just different aspects of time in the Greek language. So we're dealing with kairos. It's a specific point in time. And the idea is like many things have been culminating to bring about this specific time. It's one point, a season, or an opportunity. So in saying redeeming the time, he's saying buy back all the opportunity. Buy it up. While you have the opportunity, take advantage of it. Speaking about unbelievers. If you pray all day long that you will have an opportunity to witness to someone today. God, please bring someone along in my life that I can share the gospel with today. And he brings that along to you? That's a kairos. That's a point in time that you have a decision to share the gospel or to not share the gospel. Take advantage of that opportunity. Buy it up. Redeem that opportunity. Okay? Because that may only come once. Like we were saying, a bunch of things come together to present this opportunity. Make no mistake, God's hand is in it. Satan will not tempt you to share the gospel with someone. 
It's true. That's not his agenda. So if you are inclined to share the gospel with someone, know that that is the Holy Spirit telling you to do that. So do it. Good. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Let your speech always be with grace after you've already demonstrated your walk. Walk in wisdom is mentioned first, and then let your speech always be with grace. Now, it says seasoned with salt, and it says grace. We kind of lose a little bit of context there, not being in the Grecian culture. But in this day in Greece, the ideas of salt and grace were very much connected with each other. And even the Jews would season some of their sacrifices with salt. And we see in the New Testament that that is a picture of God's grace. It's a seasoning. It adds flavor. It's a preservative, an antiseptic in these days. They would put salt on their food, and it would preserve it. It would keep it from rotting. In fact, the word or grace in Greek is charis. And the word, some of the Jew, the Greeks would call salt charitas. Very close to charis, grace. This idea was intertwined. So when you see grace and salt together, know that that's where they were coming from. That's where Paul was coming from as someone who lived in this culture. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. And the idea here is that when it comes out, it's already been seasoned with salt. It's not coming out and then you're trying to sprinkle salt on it as it leaves your mouth. The grace of God has seasoned your life with this proverbial salt. So if you have the grace of God, you're, you're going to extend that to others. That's going to be evident in the way that you talk to them. It's already been seasoned as it comes out. Okay? Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt from the time it leaves your mouth, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now, it doesn't say that you should answer each one before they ask you. Unbelievers will sometimes, like we said, see something different in your life and question you about it. Hey, what's up with this? Hey, did Jesus really die on the cross? Did he really raise from the dead? Hey, what about this flood thing? Like, that doesn't make sense. What about the dinosaurs? When they ask you, you should have a response to that. 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, to everyone who asks you. We don't need to be uh, spewing our apologetics all over the place, okay? because largely the world will not receive it. Okay, they've already been indoctrinated. We have to act first. We walk. They see our actions. 
they ask us about it, and then that's that's kind of the priming in their hearts. Like we talked about earlier, the Spirit is working in them, making them ask you those questions. And then we provide the reason for the faith that we have. And that's what it's saying. That you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now we're going to move into a roll call. Paul is going to mention some names, and he's going to give little nuggets about each one of these guys. Okay, And as we go through this, we're going to do it quick. But as we go through this, we're going to, well, I won't speak for you, but I see parts of myself in each one of these guys. Every single one of them. So let's look at them. Now this first guy, you can pronounce his name Tychicus, Tychicus, and there's like, there's several other ways that you can say it. I don't care how you say it. I'm going to say Tychicus because I like it. So Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all the things which are happening here. So we meet this guy, Tychicus. And apparently, Paul likes the guy. He's a good guy. He's a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. And Paul trusts him. Okay? Not only is he trusting him with bringing accurate information about his state to the church in Colossae, but he's trusting him to bring this actual letter to the church in Colossae. From Rome, where Paul was, and Tychicus was at this time, and Onesimus. From Rome back to Colossae was about a thousand miles. It was a long way to go with no airplane, no car, just a donkey and a boat. <laughs> it was a long way to go. And that would be a, would have been a hard journey. It's not, it wouldn't be easy in these days. You know, we can hop on a plane and get somewhere a thousand miles away in a couple hours. That wasn't the case here. So he trusted Tychicus and Onesimus. They went together to take this letter to the churches. And there's a couple letters that they sent with him, uh, with this letter. But Paul trusted this guy. And then Onesimus was actually a runaway slave. And there's a, there's a whole dynamic with Onesimus and Philemon that we read about in the book of Philemon. The book's only a chapter long, but it's very interesting. Onesimus was Philemon's slave. Onesimus ran away somehow found himself in Rome with Paul, got saved, and then Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, now as his brother in Christ, no longer his slave. It's pretty wild. That would have been very countercultural. That would have been very unnatural for Philemon to treat Onesimus now as a brother in Christ as opposed to his slave. Literally his property. That's pretty weird. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? He was evidently from Colossae, from somewhere in that area of Asia Minor. Verse 10. We meet Aristarchus. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, 
greet you. With Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Aristarchus, we see here my fellow prisoner. That's interesting. We really don't know if Aristarchus was actually a prisoner of Rome or if Paul is referring to him as a fellow prisoner of Christ. Because we do see Paul call himself many times a bondservant, a doulos of Christ. He was an under rower. He was a servant to his master, Christ. So we don't really know what he's talking about here. Either way, we do know that Aristarchus had given up his life long before this. We actually meet him in Acts 19. Acts 19, let me go there real quick. It is when the apostles were being mobbed in Ephesus. So they, the, the silversmiths in Ephesus were mad because these guys were preaching the gospel. And this gospel was bad for business, basically. They made little idols to Diana of Ephesus. And they couldn't sell these little idols if this new gospel of grace was getting out. So they had to do something about it. They took the apostles into the theater, and there was this big mob. They were mobbing everywhere. And we meet Aristarchus as one of these guys who is taken by this mob, along with Gaius. Um, and it says that they were both Macedonians. So this guy, Aristarchus. In the next verse, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, you remember back in Acts 15, um, there was a contention. There's a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over this guy, Mark, who is apparently Barnabas' cousin. They had a disagreement whether Mark should go with them on their next missionary journey because he had left them in Pamphylia. He had deserted Paul and Barnabas. So Barnabas, being the cousin of Mark, was like, yeah, he's good to go. Let's go. Come on. Let's go, Marky. And then Paul was like, no, there's no way I'm letting this guy go with me again. He's already deserted me once. What's he going to do the second time? Like, and it says in Acts 15.39 that the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Paul and Barnabas split. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. So the first church split. Paul and Barnabas separated ways over a disagreement over Mark. But there is something cool about this story. Not that part. Another part. In 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is the last letter that we have from Paul before he's martyred. He asked Timothy to come with him, to come to Rome, to minister to him. He says that everybody else has deserted him, and Luke's the only one left with me. So, Timothy, I want you to 
come minister to me, please, in prison. Well, Timothy never made it before Paul's head got chopped off. Uh, he was martyred before Timothy could get there. But in this letter to Timothy, the last recorded letter that we have, he says, only Luke is with me, but get Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me for ministry. There's a reconciliation that went on there. So there was contention, and there was a split. And no doubt, it was very divisive between the two. But, later on, Paul says, Remember that Mark guy? Send him back to me. He's profitable for me now. There was something that went on. And Mark was brought back into the ministry. That's encouraging. Now, I know some of us, we will be in ministry. We are in ministry. And we may have to take a step back. And as sad as that is, there can be reconciliation. And you can be brought back in. And that's awesome to see. And we see it here with Mark. So now Mark is being reconciled to Paul, being called back into the mission field, and that's a great example of how we should bring somebody back. Bring them back. And it kind of goes along with Onesimus, doesn't it? The prisoner, not the prisoner, the slave, he was once a slave, now he's a brother. And Philemon, in the book of Philemon, is asked to bring him back into the fold as a brother. No longer a slave. Now we see justice. This guy Jesus, who is called justice. This is not Jesus Christ. Not Jesus of Nazareth. It's a different guy. Common name back then. Uh, in Hebrew, it would be Joshua. In the Greek, it would be Jesus. And apparently, this guy's nickname was Justice. And he was a Jew. And Justice kind of insinuates that. Uh, someone who followed the law. Justice. We kind of get that idea. And then it it actually says it in the next sentence. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. And it is comforting to have people that understand you, that come from a similar background as you. Um, it's comforting. And that's what it was to Paul. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bond servant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. That's a good thing to be said about you, especially written down in the Word of God. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you, and those who are in Laodicea, and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and Memphis, and the church that is in his house. So we meet Epaphras. Well, we don't meet him. We revisit Epaphras. And it says that he is one of you. So apparently he's from Colossae. And he's always laboring fervently for you in prayer. That's awesome. Verse 13, we see that he has great zeal for you. That word zeal can also be care or concern. So he cares about the church in Colossae very much. And that's obviously evident to Paul. See, Epaphras was in Colossae, and he founded that church there. That's really what we think. So Epaphras starts this church in Colossae. They start to have some contention, some things 
raise up some issues that they're having with Gnostic belief coming into the church. He goes to Paul in Rome to talk to Paul about these things, and that's when the two really become friends. Uh, he He's a bondservant of Christ. And this is where Paul sees his heart for the people in Colossae. He sees his fervent prayer for them and his zeal, his care for them. And those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. So these three cities, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, they're all like bunched up in modern day Turkey. It would have been Asia Minor back then, but they're very close together, like 15 or 20 miles apart. So they would have had some fellowship between them. Um, and just, just a second, we'll make another point about that. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. If Paul had not written one book in the New Testament, Luke would have been the major contributor. He wrote the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, and those two are pretty big. So Luke was a major contributor to the New Testament. And it says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now, there's a lot to be said about Luke. He was a physician. He was a friend of Paul. And he stuck with Paul on most of his missionary journeys. And I have no doubt that Luke's presence let Paul keep doing what he was doing since he had an issue with his eye. Luke was a doctor, and I'm sure that he helped Paul along in that infirmity. So there's a lot to be said about Luke um, and Demas. No beloved brother, no fellow bond slave of Christ, just Demas. <laughs> and we see why. So uh, Demas was a famous backslider. In 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10, again, 2 Timothy, the last letter written by Paul, and I think we actually just read this, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. What did Demas do? He was with Paul. He got distracted by the present world. And his affections were not set on things above. They were set on the world. The opposite of what we're told to do. We're told to set our affection on heavenly things, not be distracted about things on the earth. So we see this example of what not to do in Demas. Okay, Don't do that. Don't get distracted. Stay focused on the things that are above. And this guy didn't have the excuses that we see a lot of today. Oh, that guy's too charismatic. I don't like that. I'm going to go somewhere else. That guy, oh, he's not charismatic enough. I got to go somewhere else. Uh, he's not enough of a pastor. He's not enough of a missionary. Paul was all of these things. Demas had no excuse. And he simply let the world get to him. He got distracted. This is interesting too, sorry. We're wrapping up, I promise. Matthew 13, 22. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. 
That is Demas, to a T. He heard the word. He began in ministry. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked the word. What a vivid picture that is. So in verse 15, Paul says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. So Nymphus is a guy that leads a home fellowship in Laodicea. He's the only Laodicean, I think that's what it would be, that we hear of named. Okay, Nymphus is this guy. And I guarantee you he had no idea that his name would be in the Word of God. He was a humble home fellowship leader. And he had no idea. But here we are 2,000 years later talking about this guy named Nymphus who led some believers in his own home. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So you got to swap these letters. So once you read this one, give it to that church, let them read it, you take their letter, read it. Okay. So in this day, we, the believers would congregate together and they would literally read these letters from the apostles. And I think that they understood that that was inspired scripture right off the bat. But that's another another story for another day. Um, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Archippus is evidently the guy that Epaphras put in charge of his church while he was gone. So Epaphras founded this church in Colossae. He goes to talk to Paul in Rome. And he leaves Archippus in charge. It's interesting that Paul doesn't write to Archippus directly. But he writes to the church to encourage Archippus. Isn't that interesting? It would have been just as easy for him to write, Hey, Archippus, continue in this ministry that you've been called to. But instead he writes to the church. See, evidently, Archippus needed some pick-me-up. From the church. He needed a little boost forward. And that's kind of what Paul is trying to, to get him by asking the church to, to encourage him. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Now, Paul signed this letter himself. Probably had someone else writing it for him. He would be dictating to them what to write down. But he signed it. And no doubt his signature is large. So kind of like a John Hancock. Cause he didn't have, uh, full use of his eyes. We know that there was something wrong with his eyes that caused him to not be well in the mission field. Um, so he signs it by his own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. And that wraps up the letter to the Colossians. Uh, we've seen the preeminence of Christ. We've seen how it should affect Christian lives, Christian homes. Um, your employer your employees. We've seen how it should affect all these things. And we can apply those things to our lives. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Don't forget why I'm here. Don't forget that my chains are in Christ. They're not in Rome. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's close today in a word of prayer.